Thank you so much. It always gives me sort of a special thrill to see the signing that's going on over here. I think these people who understand sign language will perhaps know the name of Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet, who brought the sign language to this country. There is a college in Washington, D.C. named after him, and he happens to have been my great-great-grandfather. So I can remember my grandmother trying to teach me a little bit of the sign language, which she had had to learn in order to talk to her grandmother, because my, grand, my great-great-grandmother was the second student in that school for the deaf that my great-great-grandfather had founded in Hartford, Connecticut. Let me mention two books which bear on the things that I'll be talking about tonight. <clears throat> One is what I gave my daughter for a wedding present. It's called Let Me Be a Woman. This was written, written way back in the mid-1970s when the feminist movement was becoming more and more powerful, and I realized that my daughter belonged to a generation that was being fed a lot of claptrap about what it means to be a woman. Oddly enough, feminists avoid the word femininity like the plague. This book is about femininity. And then a more recent book is called A Path Through Suffering, discovering the relationship between God's mercy and our pain. My topic tonight is a measured portion. Another one of the characteristics of a joyful woman, she has a royal position, she has also a measured portion. I have a good friend who is quite well-to-do, has no children, lives in a very beautiful house, and invited my husband and me, along with her husband, to a weekend in a very luxurious hotel. And since then, we've become good friends, and she calls us up every once in a while, and she called us up to tell us that she just found a gorgeous house right near this luxury hotel. And so she was thinking about buying that second house just to have a second house and have a nice, comfortable, private place right next to the hotel, which serves such wonderful food. And I guess my husband had a number of conversations with her. He's the one that talks on the phone. I avoid the phone whenever possible. And whenever Lars is home, it's Lars that answers the phone, which is a wonderful help to me. So many times, I guess, he and she had discussed the possibility of their buying this house. And when I had a note from her, I wrote back one of my customary postcards. I've discovered that the only way that I can keep up with my correspondence is to use lots of postcards. And I don't mean picture postcards. I mean those government postcards or just some plain cards that I have printed with my name on them. So I sent her a postcard replying to whatever it was that she said in her letter. And then at the bottom of the, of the card, I wrote, don't buy that house. How much is enough? Well, of course, it's none of my business whether she buys the house or not, but she called me up and she said, Elizabeth, my husband wants you to run for president of the United States. <laughs> I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. She said, that postcard. She said, we have, it up, we have it pinned up on the wall or something like that. She said, he's been reading it over and over again. How much is enough? 
So that's a question I'd like to ask you tonight. God has promised to supply all our needs. And I mentioned last night the necessity of our learning to stop wishing for things which are impossible. And we probably should stop wishing for a whole lot of things which may not be impossible but are far from necessary and far from contributing to our sanctification. One of the verses that has been speaking loudly and clearly to me over the past six months or so is found in Psalm 16.5. The New International Version says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup and have made my lot secure. I can't tell you what serenity that gives me to realize that God himself has specifically and meticulously assigned me my portion and my cup. Exactly what God knows I need and what God knows is good for me has already been assigned. And I can trust him to make sure that it comes to me at the right time and in the right way. I don't have to go after anything. I don't have to go wishing my life away. And when things come which I would not have chosen, I can remember that those, two th those things also have been assigned to me by a loving, gracious, all-wise, all-powerful Heavenly Father. My father was a great bird watcher back when the expression bird watcher had, never, had not been coined. It was when he was 16 years old that he used to go out in the woods by himself and stand with hands behind his back as he taught us to do. If you keep your hands behind your back, you're not likely to make sudden movements which will scare the birds. And my father observed them, learned their names, and imitated them to absolute perfection. My father could imitate 60 different species of birds to such perfection that ornithologists could be fooled by them. And so he was asked at times to go around and give lectures to school children. He would show slides and talk about the birds. And he would always end his lecture with these simple lines. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and hurry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. There's a beautiful hymn written by Lena Sandell, a Swedish girl. My husband and I saw a television special on her when we were in, on one of our visits in Norway. And I believe that this is the hymn that she wrote when she was 10 years old. Both the words and the music, I think, were written by this girl. Day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure 
gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, its share of pain or pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. I love that concept that this loving Heavenly Father apportions each day's share of pain and pleasure and mingles work, toil with peace and rest. First of all, under this heading, a measured portion, let's consider the radiant example or archetype of Mary. An archetype is the model from whom or from which all other products are made. And God, of course, intended that the mother of the race should be the great archetype, the model for us to follow. But the mother of the race, Eve, sinned and said, in effect, my will be done. She usurped what God had not given. She coveted what God had not given. She refused what God had given. And thus, sin and destruction and death were brought into the world. But in the New Testament, we have that beautiful story of that little teenage girl from a village, the girl named Mary, who, when God sent his angel Gabriel to deliver a message, responded immediately with total surrender. I hadn't heard that song that you've just sung a few minutes ago, Yes, Lord, Yes, but that characterizes what Mary did, wasn't it? Yes, Lord, yes. Whatever it might cost, whatever inconvenience it might mean, perhaps even stoning to death. Remember that Mary was a Jewish girl, well-versed in Jewish law, and she surely knew that fornication was punishable by death. How was she going to explain to the townspeople that she had not been unfaithful to her fiancé? How would she explain to her parents? And how in the world would she ever explain to Joseph? But we don't find her arguing and asking all those questions to the angel. She just asked the one simple, obvious question, well, how can this happen? I don't have a husband. And then the angel explained to her that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. And Mary <clears throat> was a very simple, ordinary girl, as far as we know. It's very interesting that we don't know more about her, isn't it? I'm sure that all of us women, particularly, would love to have many more details of her life, her background, her response when that angel came into that little humble home. Perhaps she was sweeping or weaving or baking bread. Who knows what she was doing? But I assume that her duties were very simple and very ordinary. She did what other women did in her position, and she suffered what other girls of her age would have suffered. And when she received this staggering piece of news, she went to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, an older woman, a godly woman, with whom she could share her story. Have you ever thought about the fact that there's not one word of explanation from Mary 
to Joseph. Joseph thought that she had, in fact, been unfaithful to him. And it says that he, being a just man, was about to put her away quietly. He did not want to disgrace her publicly, but as a just and holy man, he did intend to put her away. But God did not make it necessary for Mary to make any explanations. God himself spoke to Joseph and explained it. A very great lesson for all of us women whose first reaction is to explain things, to defend ourselves, to support our own position. And when we keep our mouths shut, which is probably the hardest thing for most of us to do, we can trust God to take care of whatever explanations may be necessary. God has his own way of doing it, which may not have anything to do with what we would have thought was necessary. So Mary is silent, and throughout the Gospels, what little shreds of information we have about Mary speak more than once of her silence, her keeping things in her heart and pondering them. Characteristics of a godly woman, the ability to keep her mouth shut, to trust God, to think and talk to God before she talks to anybody else. It's taken me far too many decades to learn these lessons, and I'm not through. But I am trying to learn not to pop off about everything as fast as I can, but just to be silent and to look to God and to look at whatever the thing is that might trouble me in conspectu dei. And if, there wasn't, if there's anyone who wasn't here last night, it's a little Latin phrase, very simple, spelled I-N-C-O-N-S-P-E-C-T-U-D-E-I, in conspectu dei. And it's a Latin phrase that speaks in three words what it takes more English words to say, but it means in the view or in the presence of God. Take the thing that troubles you into the presence of God and offer it to him. Now let's think about what Mary did that was simple and ordinary. Well, she went to visit her cousin. Nothing unusual about visiting a relative, is there? She had to go to Beth Bethlehem for the census. She was not exempt from the census, even though she was now the bearer of the Son of God. She was not excused from the ordinary requirements of citizens in those days. She was poor and found, she and Joseph found themselves in a stable because there wasn't any room in the inn. Then she had to return to Nazareth because of Herod's persecution, and she lived quietly with Joseph and Jesus, who presumably carried on their work in the carpenter shop. We don't have a word about what happened in Egypt. We don't know how in the world Joseph managed to provide for them there. Did he get a job as a carpenter? What did they live on for two years? No explanations of that. But what we see in the life of Mary 
is similar to what happens to everybody. Ordinary housework, visit to a relative, having to obey the law, and troubles, sufferings, little inconveniences. It might have been, perhaps, that the stable was a better place than the noisy, smoky inn might have been, but it was still just a stable and presumably cold. What is unseen is that which faith discerns, and it's nothing less than God himself fulfilling his mighty purposes through the ordinary circumstances of daily life. God reveals himself to us in small, humble things so often. And it's only the eye of faith that sees those things. Mary, to me, is just a radiant and shining example of a holy woman, the God-bearer. And you and I, because we were born with a female body, are bearers, aren't we? It's very clear that the female anatomy was created for bearing, for carrying, for nurturing. Lessons which are loaded with spiritual significance if we have the faith, the eye of faith, to see them. And what is Mary's response to this incredible privilege that has been granted to her? Well, she sings the beautiful song when she's at Elizabeth's house. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. That hymn is full of references to the Old Testament, making it very clear that Mary was thoroughly cognizant of the things which God had taught in the earlier books of the Bible. Proud people attach importance only to outward appearances and can't see God even in the big things. Humble people, holy people, see God in humble, holy, very often small things. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup and have made my lot secure. How much is enough? Mary could never have imagined in that humble home that in her daily work, in her faithfulness, in the cooking and the washing and the weaving and the sweeping, that she was being prepared to do the greatest thing that ever, any woman has ever been called upon to do for God. And God chose an unknown girl in a little nowheresville the object of scorn, a place called Nazareth. 
God assigned her that portion and that cup. Who knows but what you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, this October of 1994. God is calling us to holiness, to silence, to obedience, to a reverent attention to what he wants to say to us and to a willingness and readiness to receive what he wants to give to us. We never know what God wants to give us next. God has given me many, many things in my life which I could never have imagined. I certainly could not have imagined getting anyone as wonderful as Jim Elliott when I was a student in college. I was one of those girls that was usually considered a wallflower, and he was a BMOC, a big man on campus. Well, God did bring us together in a most remarkable way, and I thought when we came out of that wedding ceremony, till death us do part. Well, that's at least 50 years down the road. Little could I have imagined that God was going to give me the gift of widowhood. I certainly never imagined getting married a second time because I was perfectly sure that I could never love anybody the way I'd love Jim Elliott. And 13 years later, God gave me a second husband. And then when he died, my mind was totally shut to the possibility of a third marriage. God has all kinds of things up his sleeve. We can never predict, but we can trust him. So let's ask the Lord to help us to follow that radiant example of that little Mary and to be for God whatever God needs us to be for him, for his glory. And what she said to God, to the angel, when that message came was, according to the New International Version, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Another translation says, I belong to the Lord, body and soul. Do anything you want with me. Or behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen. As, as you say, be it unto me according to thy word. And that is a total and irrevocable commitment and surrender. That's what we should offer to God. And he gives to us the exact measured portion that we should have. Now, point two and point three are what we don't have and point, and point three, what we have. Let's think about the portion of things which we don't have. Last night I read to you that quotation from an old writer, do not yield to longings after that which is impossible. I suppose that every one of us has wishes desires, dreams, ambitions, hopes. And perhaps you've been cherishing that wish or that hope for years and years and years and nothing has come of it. And you wonder why God is cheating you of something that you really deserve or perhaps really ought to have or perhaps you think you need it and you don't have it. 
A very beautiful letter was given to me today by one of the ladies here, telling me that for years she had felt absolutely convinced that she could not possibly ever be fulfilled or happy unless God gave her a husband. And the rest of the letter exp expressed most eloquently the ways in which God had changed her heart. She's still single and thanking God for the gift of singleness, rejoicing in it, at peace, fulfilled, because she has accepted the measured portion, which only God knows is right for us. You know, Jesus said that a father, a loving father, will not give his child a stone if the child asks for bread, or a scorpion if he asks for a fish. But the problem with a lot of our prayers is that we are quite convinced that what we're praying for is a fish or bread. And the truth is, it's a scorpion or a stone, something that would destroy us. And so we don't have it, and God's answer to our impassioned prayers and our bangings away on God's door is no. The answer is no. Why? Because he hates us? Well, that's exactly what Israel accused him of, wasn't it? You brought us out into this wilderness, this waste-howling wilderness, because you hate us. They told that to Moses. God hates us. That's why he brought us out here. Now, who talks like that? Well, nobody but us. And you mothers of little children, when they ask for a second popsicle, if you're wise, what is your answer? No. And what's the reply of the little kid? You never let us have anything. <laughs> Ring any bells out there? And he is absolutely convinced that the only reason that you will not let him have the popsicle is because you don't love him. And the truth of the matter is that the only reason you won't let him have that popsicle is because you do love him. And that's exactly why the measured portion does not include a whole lot of things that we think we ought to have. That's what prayer is about. Not twisting God's arm to get God to do what I think God ought to do, but God transforming my heart and my life and my set of mind to be willing to accept what his eternal wisdom allots, that measured portion. Now, someone has said that enough money is always a little bit more than you've got. Is there anybody here that has enough money? I'm not asking for a show of hands. One of the questions that comes to me with dismaying frequently, frequency in my radio mail is how can I get my husband to meet my needs? A mother came up to me and she said, Elizabeth, what can I say to my daughter who is about to divorce her husband because he doesn't meet her needs? And I heaved a great sigh, and I said, why don't you ask your daughter where on earth she ever got such a wild idea that there is a human being on earth who can meet her needs? There is no such thing. 
Now, I speak from a certain platform of experience, <laughs> having had not one, not two, but three godly, wonderful husbands. Not one of them could meet my needs. And if I had all three of them simultaneously, <laughs> they would be a miserable failure at meeting my needs. What did St. Augustine say? O oh God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And nobody and nothing on earth is ever going to fill that vacuum. Jim Elliott used to say, every woman needs three husbands. <laughs> Little imagining that he was speaking in any sense prophetically, he simply meant, <laughs> he said she needs somebody to bring home the bacon, one husband to love her, and one husband to fix things around the house. <laughs> but it's unreasonable for any woman to expect her husband to do all of the above. If he does any one of those three, be grateful. I remember a series of complaining letters in one of the Dear Abby or Anne Landers columns, I've forgotten which, from women complaining about the noise their husbands make snoring. And after several days of replies and arguments back and forth and more complaints, the whole thing ended when a widow wrote in and she said, snoring is the sweetest music in the world. The measured portion is going to eliminate the things that we think we ought to have but we don't have. Not, we don't have enough money. We don't have a husband who can meet our needs. Now when my husband Jim was going to go into dangerous Alca territory, of course I and the other four wives were praying very earnestly and specifically that God would protect these men physically. We knew that the Alka's reputation was that they were killers, they killed outsiders, the chances of their coming back alive were not too high, but there was no question in our minds that God was calling them to go in there, but we prayed that God would bring them back alive. And when I found that my husband was missing, I didn't know yet that he was dead. It took four more days before we learned that all five of the men had been killed, but I was talking to God about how much I needed my husband. And then I thought, well, I can't argue that one too strongly with God. I guess he knows what I need, but surely Valerie needs a father. We were going to have a big family, and I was certainly assuming that God was going to provide a father for whatever children God gave me, and a father that would still be around. Well. Maybe I didn't need him. Maybe Valerie didn't need him that badly. But what about the Quechua Indians? We were working on a station with Quechuas. We had 50 newly baptized young believers, most of them in their early 20s. Who was going to teach this church? Who was going to translate the Bible? Who was going to lead those young men and train them as Paul trained Timothy? Surely the Quechuas need Jim. Well, the same sort of arguments were marshaled, shall I say, against God, not exactly against God, but offered to God and laid before him many times when my second husband got cancer. 
I thought, well, I guess God, I can't tell God that I need a husband because I've lived 13 years since Jim died without one, and now this one looks as though he might die. But what about the church in which he had a very prominent position in a particular denomination? He was very widely known. He was a speaker. He had written eight books. He did a lot of traveling and speaking. He was a professor in the seminary. Well, if they don't need him in those churches, they need him in the seminary. They, these young men who looked up to him. I was told that there were 90 students in that seminary for the one sole reason that that man was the professor there. And so here were all these people that needed him. And God's answer was no. We feel as though we need consolation. We need love. We need understanding. And I think of the great prayer written more than 700 years ago by St. Francis of Assisi. You know that prayer, I trust, and I hope you use it. I have it framed on the wall of my study, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. And then this second half, we need desperately in today's world. Teach me, good Lord, to seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. We don't need more consolation than we get. My God shall supply all your need. Now, if you need a shoulder to cry on, a human shoulder with skin on it to cry on, God will send that along. And God does most mercifully give us human comforters. But there are times when there is no human comforter. There are times when we have obligations to other people that don't leave room for finding consolation for ourselves. When Jim died, there was no white person within three days' walk of where I lived, except my 10-month-old baby. There was nobody that spoke English. There was nobody that came around offering me a shoulder to cry on, propping me up, or hovering over me. And so I can testify tonight that he was my sufficiency. He had given me the verse when I received the news of his being missing from Isaiah 43 2, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. And I can say tonight, he kept the promise. He has never broken a promise. Teach me not so much to be consoled as to console. If I don't have it, I don't need it. If I don't have it, I don't need it. 
Not now. Now, if God knows that you need something tomorrow, you will have it tomorrow, but you think you need it right now. And my Bible says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus, according to his wisdom, according to his riches, according to that measured portion which he has already assigned. It will be there. How many single women think, I've got to have a man? And I have piles and piles of letters from people who have read my book, Passion and Purity. And most of the letters are from singles because it is a story of five and a half years of a single person longing and hoping and praying, but without any promise of fulfillment. What do you do with your unfulfilled longings? Well, I was learning during those five and a half years of discipline to bring them under the authority of Jesus Christ. But so many of these letters that come to me say, thank you for your book. I learned a whole lot from it. I'm learning patience. I know that God will bring along the man he wants me to marry in the right time. But there is, in that kind of a sentence, the assumption that God is going to bring the man. Maybe he's not. I certainly face that. It looked very, very plausible to me that I would be a single missionary for the rest of my life. If God knows that your prayer for a husband is not a stone instead of bread, then God will give you the husband. But only God knows that measured portion. Now, one of the things that so many people long for is talents or gifts that somebody else has. It's very easy, isn't it, to look at somebody else and think, well, if I could sing like mine, then I would be able to serve the Lord. If I could run a conference like this the way Joy Martin does, just think of the influence that God would give me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could play the piano the way that man played the piano? I never heard anything like it. I can't believe the fingering. Isn't it reasonable to, to assume that God gives you exactly the gifts which are appropriate to the job he wants you to do? Of course it is. God will give you the gifts which are appropriate to the job he wants you to do. Now, I think too often we think of gifts in terms of visible, public, spiritual things, like singing or speaking or playing the piano or leading the singing or preaching or writing a book. These are visible, public things. But, you know, very, very little time out of my whole life is spent in doing any of those things. Maybe you think I spend all my life writing books or preparing radio talks or standing up in front of audiences, but if I were to count up the, the number of hours that I do that as opposed to the number of hours that I'm studying or cleaning the bathroom or going to the grocery store or cooking the soup for Lars, I think you'd find out that those are a minor proportion. But the point I'm trying to make here is that everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. What God has given you is a gift from God. Singleness, marriage, this amount of money, this house to live in, these particular people to get along with. And I was in Libby Hanford's 
seminar workshop this afternoon where she talked about difficult relationships. God has assigned us our portion of difficult relationships in order to put us on our faces before him, seeking his grace, his compassion, his understanding. Now let, let me read to you some other people's opinions about these, this business of what we don't have. Let us be very careful, writes Elizabeth Charles, 19th century, let us be very careful of thinking, on the one hand, that we have no work assigned us to do, or, on the other hand, that what we have assigned to us is not the right thing for us. If ever we can say in our hearts to God, in reference to any daily duty, this is not my place, I would choose something dearer. I am capable of something higher. We are guilty not only of rebellion, but of blasphemy. It is equivalent to saying not only my heart revolts against thy commands, but also thy commands are unwise. Thine almighty guidance is unskillful. Thine omniscient eye has mistaken the capacities of thy creature. Thine infinite love is indifferent to the welfare of thy child. Think about that one. Now here's another one from the 17th century. Resignation to the divine will signifies a cheerful approbation and thankful acceptance of everything that comes from God. It is not enough patiently to submit, but we must thankfully receive. Open your hands, say, yes, Lord, yes. Now that's a parenthesis in here. Let me read on. This is from William Law, who wrote the devout, a serious call to a devout and holy life. We must thankfully receive and fully approve of everything that by the order of God's providence happens to us. For there is no reason why we should be patient, but what is as good and as strong a reason why we should be thankful. Whenever, therefore, you find yourself disposed to uneasiness or murmuring, at anything that is the effect of God's providence over you, you must look upon yourself as denying either the wisdom or the goodness of God. Examine your heart. Are you saying to God, your infinite love is indifferent to your child? You wouldn't verbalize that, surely. But is there some vestige of that spirit that you discover in your heart? Do you look upon yourself as denying the wisdom or goodness of God? It's very subtle, isn't it? The way Satan tempts us because of the things we don't have. Now let's think about the things we do have. The psalmist says in Psalm 142.5, you are my portion. When we have God, we have everything, in other words. Who could ask for anything more? You are my portion. 